it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. First, not the parent first. Lauren Lake, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Please come back. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts now. Got some breaking news that's happening right now. Reports of at least six, even up to eight people, some of them children, unaccounted for after a bizarre incident, a shooting and a house fire, all wrapped onto one very bizarre occurrence. Uh, this happened in a suburb of Philadelphia. We're bringing in these pictures for you, but we know very little. But there is something we, we must tell you, and that is that two police officers were also reported shot and wounded. This is all going down in East Lansdowne, west of the city. Um, it is, uh, well, the city district attorney's office said they don't know at this point if there are more people inside that burning inferno. But two police officers were reportedly fired upon when they came to attend to a call that there was an 11-year-old girl, apparently, who was shot. An 11-year-old girl shot. That's the call. The police arrive, and this is what they see. They held a news conference a short time ago, the officials there, and they said they still don't know how many people are even in that house or how many people were believed to live in that house. They said they can't even get into that house until tomorrow morning when that fire is completely out. According to local news reports, a neighbor said that he heard gunshots before he was ordered out of his own home by police. He's now terribly worried that it, his dogs are in there and if his house catches fire because it's next door, his dogs are in danger. At this point, we have absolutely no idea who fired the shots or what motivated the shooting or the fire. I want to bring in Caitlin Becker, News Station's national correspondent. Caitlin, I did hear one thing when they were talking in the, in the news conference, and that was that there's two officers shot. Other officers are rushing to their aid, and they're getting fired upon as well. So where, where do we stand in this whole melee? Well, Ashley, from what we understand, when the officers arrived on the scene, shots rang out. And according to the DA, the shooter then ran into this home. And then about 15 minutes later, it went up in flames. The DA believes that the shooter purposefully set fire to this house. Likely, my guess is, to flee. But we have no idea, and neither do the authorities at this point, where that shooter is, if that shooter is alive, if they're in the house, if they fled, and who else may be inside. So really, the house, which, you, as you said, we can't get into for search and rescue until tomorrow when that blaze has fully been extinguished. Until then, we won't know what we're really dealing with here. Is it a mass shooting? Because we know there was gunfire. Is it a mass murder? Is there no one in the house? Is it arson? Is it an accident? Well, what do we know about, you know, at least witnesses? Were there, did anybody see anything that they could sort of help uh, and, and inform the police of what they were dealing with? Actually, quite a few people were around. This happened kind of middle of the day, about 3.30, 3.45. So take a look right now at what a local crossing guard had to say about what she witnessed when the shots rang out. Talking fine around the corner. He got out, and then he's in front of the house talking to two people. And then all of a sudden, I heard six or seven gunshots. Cop, cop down on the ground, I ran and took off. 
And Ashley, we, from what we understand, those gunshots certainly hit those two officers. They were two of them. Each of them shot once, once in an arm, once in a leg. They're being treated at a local hospital. They are expected to survive, but we don't know the status of if anyone is in that house and whether or not they were alive or possibly dead when the flames started. There are definitely more questions mm. than answers with this story at this point. That's just heartbreaking to hear that there's at least six, maybe eight people at this point, including kids, that they can't find, that they're unaccounted for. And then you see this inferno and you wonder, God, please uh, don't let them be in there. You know, don't let them uh, have succumbed to, to this kind of awfulness. Caitlin, keep an eye on it for us during the show and just report back when you um, when and if you hear some more. Absolutely. All right, Caitlin Becker uh, doing that live reporting for us tonight. We will watch that and we'll let you know. And thank God the officers are going to be okay. But, you know, they're shot at and the other officers shot at as they're uh, trying to rescue these officers. This is a terrible, terrible story that's unfolding. Um, like I said, we'll, we'll update you. But I have this other big breaking story as well. I mean, I didn't expect it was going to get this big this fast. But neither of the W's in the WWE stands for wall. Yet a wall of silence sure has kept that place insulated. The thing about walls, though, is that sometimes with the right amount of pressure at the right amount of time, they can come crashing down even if they have stood for generations. And it appears that the walls protecting Vince McMahon at the top of the WWE food chain might just be doing that, crumbling all around him. Today, several former insiders, including wrestling superstars, are now speaking out about the WWE's culture in general and sexual assault allegations against McMahon in particular. A former WWE Intercontinental Champion has sent this show an exclusive statement with his thoughts about McMahon and they are not flattering. He also sent us what he considers proof that the WWE has spent years trying to silence him and I'm going to share all of that with you in just a moment. First though, a couple of new developments in that federal criminal investigation, federal criminal investigation into Vince McMahon. All of it for the alleged sex trafficking. There are sources telling the Wall Street Journal that over the past few months, federal investigators have spoken with multiple women accusing McMahon of misconduct. They include Janelle Grant, who is the former WWE employee who filed that bombshell civil suit that, that prompted McMahon's resignation last week. Feds also questioned another federal or former employee who reportedly said that she was demoted after she broke off an affair with John Laurinaitis. Laurinaitis is the WWE's former head of talent relations. Laurinaitis is also lumped into the lurid accusations that were made against McMahon last week in that lawsuit, as is the entire WWE organization itself. Janelle Grant accuses Laurinaitis and McMahon of grooming her and raping her repeatedly during her employment there. This week, an attorney for Laurinaitis told the media site Vice that, brace yourself, Laurinaitis himself was coerced by McMahon and is, quote, a victim in this case, not a predator. Just let that sit for a minute. And we've also learned new details about McMahon's sudden uh, departure from the organization on January 26th, just one day after Grant filed her lawsuit. Reportedly, it was not his idea. WWE is now part of a company that's called TKO, which also owns the UFC. And TKO is owned by a company called Endeavor, if you've heard of it, you should. It is um, owned and led by a former famous Hollywood super agent named Ari Emanuel. And the sources tell The Hollywood Reporter that Emanuel was blindsided by the graphic and stomach-turning allegations 
in Janelle Grant's lawsuit and that he immediately told McMahon it would be in the best interest of the company if he went away. McMahon once controlled 34% of TKO stock, and that is now down to 10% after a planned sell-off. Ronda Rousey, a former UFC fighter and WWE champion, has said that she does not completely buy that McMahon has really resigned and thinks that he still may be involved behind the scenes. Rousey is just one of the former WWE champions who have recently broken their silence. And I'm just going to tell you this. You might want to get a, uh, a pad and paper. Here we go. Current WWE superstar Seth Rollins had this to say on CBS Sports Radio. Take a look. It's awful. It's terrible. I I hate it. It's a disgusting situation. Disgusting situation, he says. Um, Former WWE WWE star Maria Kanellis posted this on her social media site. All the news coming out is horrible, she says. Many of us experienced or heard rumors of different levels of evil for years. Some tried to speak up to build momentum to change the culture in WWE. Many times we've been called bitter or crazy. Others have been paralyzed by fear. I just hope justice is served, and I hope this brings some people peace. I pray for all the victims, the ones that have spoken up, the ones no longer with us, and the ones who suffer in silence. It's a powerful, powerful statement. And then there's this from former WWE superstar Mick Foley. He also discussed the lawsuit on his podcast called Foley is Pod. He said, I don't know all the facts, but man, it's really ugly. I hope it doesn't take away from people's amazing memories of all the things that Mr. McMahon created or helped create, including my character and the programs that I was in. He was such a big part of it. I wish he really just stepped aside the first time we just heard a little hint of these allegations. Former WWE Intercontinental Champion Ryback Reeves sent us this statement today exclusively, and let me read from it. Quote, a lot more is going to come out on Vince McMahon and the entire structure of the company from from his time there. He will go down as one of the most evil humans to have ever existed. And there is far worse to come out on him and many others still in the company who also knew of much of this activity, of his activity. It's all going to come out if they keep looking. They've hidden everything with non-disclosure agreements. Ryback also sent us these photos of an email that he says he received from the WWE along with this statement. Quote, the WWE tried to get me to hand over all my social media in 2016 when I walked out along with an NDA. I declined, and they've illegally suppressed my socials for nearly 7.5 years, along with pushing fake articles to create hate and discredit myself and my brand. The WWE has not responded to our multiple requests for comment, and this is why I now bring in Dave Meltzer. He is a respected sports journalist covering pro wrestling and MMA. He's also the editor of the Wrestling Observer. Dave, I mean, I I couldn't really keep up with with the names and the statements and the podcasts and the video representations and the excoriations of Vince McMahon. And I just wonder if this is indeed the dam breaking. Um, it's going to slowly break as time goes by. More and more people will feel, if they believe that he's gone, they'll be feeling more and more comfortable to speak out against him, yeah. 
Well, I called it DEFCON Weinstein on Friday. And that started with a trickle as well. A couple of women who finally just had the power to, to say their piece. And suddenly, one by one, same thing happened with Cosby. One by one, over 100, all came forward with, with their accounts. So while it's okay to hear people upset and speaking out, I think what's really needed is you know, people who, like Janelle Grant, um, if they have actual um, harm that they can document uh, to, to, to come out and be public, do you think that's going to happen? Um, that's hard to say. I think that the, the investigators are going to be looking for those people. And we know the people with the NDAs, and we know they're talking to the people with the NDAs. So people who are the most, who had, I guess, the most uh, that for WWE to fear by paying them the NDAs are talking or attempt or the feds are attempting to get them to talk. So, um, yeah, there's probably going to be a lot more because these allegations have been around for decades. And, um, you know, it's just connecting the uh, stories with the faces, so to speak, at this point. Well, an NDA, you know, can't protect you from criminal prosecution. And if the feds are involved at the level um, at which it appears today with these additional women who have been questioned, well, have you heard anything on the inside, sort of industry-wide, about what their tactics are, what the feds are doing, who they're talking to, what they're getting, what kind of case they might be mounting? No, I mean, not, I, mean I don't know anything about, like, um, what, you know, what they have talked about with the feds or anything like that. No. As far as in the industry, it's... It's pretty secretive. I mean, everyone is curious, but nobody really knows inside as far as the federal investigation goes. You know, I mean, internally, um, there's all kinds of rumors as well, but nothing, nothing substantive has happened um, as far as anybody else other than Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis. All right. Talk to me about Laurinaitis. Uh, John Laurinaitis was named in Janelle Grant's suit. She said that he was often part of the abuse, that they tag-teamed her. Um, I mean, the, 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 I... I I struggle to even say what the allegations were because they're yeah. really horrifying. Um, what she says, and they're disgusting, just disgusting. The language that allegedly Vince McMahon used to communicate with her, uh, the language that I mean, you, you know, you, was suggested you, you, you've with, seen, with John Laurinaitis. You've seen say the again? text. You, you've seen the text. So, I mean, as far as the language goes, I mean, a lot of that's right there in written form from him. So that's really, uh, you know, that's pretty damning evidence to me. And it's important to say these are allegations in a, you know, in a lawsuit that was filed by, by Janelle Grant. He says he, he vehemently denies it. He says this is all made up and he's going to have his day in court. He says, uh, we'll wait to see if he has his yeah. day in court or if he decides to settle. But talk to me about John Laurinaitis because I didn't see this coming. I did not see John Laurinaitis's lawyer coming forward to say, oh, no, no, John's a victim, too. John was coerced by McMahon. Uh, but doesn't John... Lauren, I just know where the bodies are buried. Does this smell like of, of a full-on flip? Like he's going to flip on Vince McMahon? 100% flip to save himself, yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like. That's what it is. Um, and, I mean, one of the things is, by flipping on him, one of the things his lawyer basically said is, is it was a corroboration. Yeah, most of this stuff or much of this stuff happened, which is scary in the case of the rape allegation, because if he claims that, you know, I mean, he's going to try to save himself and the, you know, and saying he was coerced and everything like that. But by by just saying that, I mean, the, you know, his lawyer said that basically it's a good lawsuit, except it doesn't pay, it paints John as the predator instead of also being the victim. 
But that's a corroboration that the story's not made up. At least, at least the way it's, it looks to me. It's wild. Big question for you, and I, I said Defcon Weinstein, but WrestleMania 40 is coming up, and it's like the you know it's the, it's the end all be all, right? So yeah, I wonder if you think April 6th and 7th, you know, if it's going to stay on the rails. And I ask that also because The Rock's daughter has been getting death threats. I thought it had to do with all of this business. It turns out it's it's not. It's about The Rock replacing uh, Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania. So are the fans more? I mean, are they just going to stay focused on, on the wrestling and the entertainment? Or is this going to have a, 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 an effect? Like, a, Will it cast a pall on, on WrestleMania 40? WrestleMania 40 is going to go on. It's going to be the biggest event as far as uh, people watching in the history of wrestling, no matter what happens. I mean, this is not going to change that. Um, and as far as fans, what, what I could say is on social media, there is a lot more outrage, unfortunately, about uh, the main event at WrestleMania than there is about the Vince McMahon stuff. Now, I've even I've brought that up myself and I go, isn't that kind of sick that you're, you know, more upset about this than the other thing? And the kind of reaction is just like, well, we can't control the other thing, but maybe if we complain enough, we can get the WrestleMania main event changed. And I mean, the funny part of it is, is that this is all a WWE storyline to rile up the fans in the first place. So they don't even know that they're being played when they're getting this upset. So it's just, you know, it's crazy. It's a crazy situation. Wow. I mean, it has me pretty fascinated on both sides, on the entertainment side and then, of course, on the legal side. Dave Meltzer, I told you that you were going to be a regular guest and that's not going to end. Thank you for doing this tonight. Yeah, anytime. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. And we're going to continue to cover the story because, like I said, feels like the dam's breaking. In the meantime, straight ahead, a woman in the Midwest is accused of being a serial killer. And yes, I said woman. Drugging, stealing, killing like a ruthless, grim reaper, if the accusations are true. And now there's also a pattern of dead bodies in Austin, Texas. Is that a Southern serial killer? How is it that cops decide when it's no longer just a murder here and there, but a twisted animal that's actually stalking our citizens one by one? Up next, the man who pinned seven cold cases on the torso killer with some advice on how to turn the tables on a serial killer and stalk them till they're caught. If you just look at the numbers that we've reported in detail on this program, we probably don't have too much to fear when it comes to serial killers because there aren't actually that many of them. One study found that back in 1987, there were a whopping 198 active serial killers lurking around the U.S. That's the most on record. But in 2018, there were just 12. 12 compared to 198. And still, murders happen every day, and the patterns do emerge by design or just by coincidence, and suspects do get charged. Case in point, in Columbus, Ohio, a suspect named Rebecca Auburn is said to be the rarest kind of serial killer, a woman. She is charged with four counts of murder, among other things, for allegedly meeting up with men for sex and then killing them with fentanyl so that she can rob them. She was due in court again today, but she opted to waive her right to a speedy trial, and instead her hearing was continued, so stay tuned. And speaking of patterns, in 2022 alone, 11 bodies of young men in their 20s and 30s were pulled out of the waterways around Chicago. More were recovered last year, 
And you'd better believe that Chicagoans want to know if, in fact, these are connected. The police have not said as much, but elsewhere in Austin, Texas, just yesterday, police fished yet another body out of Lady Bird Lake. Between February and April of last year, four bodies, all men under the age of 40, were pulled from that lake. And will police say that they don't suspect foul play? The cyber sleuths have something else to say. They've already given the hypothetical killer a nickname, the Rainy Street Ripper. It's quite something. I don't know why it's not the Ladybird Lake Ripper, but... The question is, you know, how do investigators know if they're tracking a killer or if they're tracking a serial killer? Is there really a smiley face killer out there somewhere? killing and dumping young men on their way home from bars and leaving smiley face graffiti at all of the scenes because that idea has been bouncing around for almost 30 years. And despite the FBI and dozens of experts doing their level best to shoot it down, um, it just refuses to die. And my next guest knows a thing or two about all of this. Robert Anzalotti is the retired chief of the detectives for Bergen County Prosecutor's Office in New Jersey. He has closed seven cold cases related to the so-called Torso Killer, a man named Richard Cottingham, who terrorized Bergen County from at least 1967 until his arrest in 1980, and he was known for dismembering his victims. Here's Cottingham confessing to the 1969 murder of Irene Blaze from A&E's The Torso Killer Confessions. Ultimately, he notices that she walks to a bus stop and she is last seen by witnesses talking to an unknown white male. And he starts pulling on his earlobe. Yes, you know, how about we go get a drink? And she hesitated and then she says, well, I can go for one drink. Should I have a walk there? No, no, we took a cab. I got her to go to the Holiday Inn in Middlebury. That's where I had my car parked. I think we had two drinks. When Cottingham mentions taking Irene Blaze to Little Ferry, a light bulb goes off in my head. In 1967, some two years earlier, that's exactly where he met Nancy Vogel and abducted her from. Mm. Robert Anzalotti is live with me now. Uh, Robert, thank you for being on. And I'm going to ask you about Richard Cottingham in a moment and, and what it was like to negotiate with a guy like that. But the first question I have for you is sort of broader. Since you've been through so many of these cases, what is it that triggers the cops to change their thinking from a murder here and there to an absolute pattern where, dear God, we've got a serial predator out there that we've got to stop? Uh, well, thanks, Ashley, for having me on, first of all. But uh, so that question is a tough one. I, I think it is so specific to what's going on in a general pattern. But it is just that a pattern, right? The cops are looking for a pattern. Um, it's it becomes kind of complacent. I was a homicide detective for 20 years. We kind of get used to the idea that a victim ordinarily knows their killer. Uh, for the most part, cases are either they may be gang related, they may be domestic uh, violence related. It's not often stranger abduction related types of crimes. They're more, much more rare. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. for the most part, homicide detectives don't think that way until we start to see a number of bodies popping up that begin to fit a certain pattern. Uh, and those patterns could be a lot of things, right? Uh, it could be, hey, is it uh, an age demographic? It is a gender specific 
uh, pattern? Is it like we're talking about in Austin, these bodies keep popping up in the same body of water? What does that mean? Uh, but I think that's really where, the, as a homicide detective, you begin to say, is this part of something more? I mean, yeah, like some places are just convenient, right? Gilgo Beach might have been convenient or may have just all been the Gilgo Beach serial killer. Uh, some lakes are nice and secluded and dark and, and maybe a good place to, to, to dump a body. Let, let me get you to Richard Cottingham for a moment, because I can't imagine what your job is like. You know, I often imagine what it would be like to be Clarice Starling. But negotiating with a killer like Cottingham, who literally wants to know what's in it for him at all times, how do you, well, first of all, how do you get something out of him? And second of all, how do you learn from him to be better at, you know, the mousetrap that you continued to build? Yeah, so uh, I will say this. I've interviewed um, dozens and dozens of, of killers and certainly my handful of serial killers besides Cottingham. They're all a little bit unique, a little bit different. But when it comes to serial killers like Cottingham, the common denominator is uh, ego, manipulation, and, and uh, just really, like you just said, what's in it for me? Why should I help you? Um, at the end of the day, they all have that same thing that they, they think they're smarter than the cops. They think they're smarter than the public. They certainly think they're smarter than their victims. So it's a matter of kind of finding like what, how do you get under their skin to get them to believe that they're controlling the conversation. Oh, that's got to feel like you need a shower afterwards. Honestly, I can't even, can't even think through that, but how hard is it? Because I keep thinking about all these, you know, like BTK is sitting there and I, I, I really, truly believe he's got plenty more victims that he's not copping to. How hard sure. is it to get someone like that to just cough it up and confess? You're, you're rotting away anyway. Nothing's going to change in your life. How can you get them to confess? I love that statement, right? Everybody thinks that way. Hey, what do they have to lose? They're, they're doing multiple life sentences. Why don't they just confess? And I give the same answer every time. That is... They are masters of control. They're, think about the killings that they've done. It's about control. And while they're rotting in prison, they have control of nothing in their life other than what they spit out of their own mouth. So it's not quite that simple as to just, uh, just be like, well, they have nothing to lose, so let's, uh, you know, let's get them to talk. It's the, actually the exact opposite. They look at it now, hey, you're engaging me. I'm going to try and control this situation, and I'll decide when I spit out whatever it is I choose to spit out. I mean, I think I, I would lose so much patience if I were you and I would slam the door in their face and say, enjoy your commissary cookies. You know, I get so angry and frustrated just thinking about yeah, it's all a bigger picture, though, right? You, their families. Yes, exactly. There, right. Yes. There's a bigger picture there. Absolutely right. Robert Anzalotti, I could talk to you forever. So, in fact, I'm going to call you back and have you on again. Thank you for doing this tonight. I'll come back anytime. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for what you do. Oh, it's great to have you. Well, right back at you, obviously, having put that guy away. So appreciate it. All right. Still to come, folks. Um, the coroner called it the most heinous crime he had ever seen. An autistic woman, neglected, starved, literally melted in death into her couch, surrounded in her own waste. And who was to blame? Allegedly her own parents. The man who charged them with murder joins me next.
his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. This Valentine's Day, wish for a romantic dinner. Wish for a little kiss. Wish for nine hours of I Dream of Genie. Your wish is our command. So watch I Wish for an I Dream of Genie Valentine's Day Marathon. Thou art all heart. February 14th, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern on Antenna TV. Go to antennatv.tv to check your local listings. Inflation has fallen in recent months, and one reason may be lower gasoline prices, but that may be about to change. According to AAA, the national average price of regular gas has risen nearly a dime a gallon in the last week. A weekend refinery accident could send prices even higher. Instagram is rolling out a new feature that it says will encourage teens to rethink how much time they're spending on the app late at night. The company said the new feature will nudge young users if they have been on the site longer than 10 minutes at night. If you try to stick to a vegan diet, consider this. A new study by the Chartered Trading Standards Institute claims that despite the belief vegan products contain nothing from animals, there is no legally binding definition for the term anywhere in the world. Some vegan products can contain small amounts of egg and dairy. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. If I would have kept making only the minimum payments on my credit cards, my debt would have taken me 47 years to pay off. These are real National Debt Relief customers. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get out of debt by myself. Credit card, medical, or personal loan debt? National Debt Relief negotiates with your creditors to reduce what you owe. National Debt Relief got me out of debt? You could be debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months. Visit NationalDebtRelief.com to learn more and get started. NationalDebtRelief.com Hey, everyone. Operation Lifesaver here. Today, we're going to find out what delivery drivers know about railroad safety. What do you do if your vehicle gets stuck on the railroad tracks? Get out of the car. Correct. Do you take the pizza? No, then I call my boss. No, then you call the number on the blue and white ENS sign. And tell them I'm stuck in the crossing ID number. Exactly. Remember, get out, get away. Find the blue and white sign to save your life. Leave the pizza. See tracks, think train. For more information, go to oli.org. You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. Where can the skills you learn with ham radio take you? Amateur radio, often called ham radio, is the place where today's engineers got their start. Ham radio is more popular than ever before. With hands-on training in electronics, engineering, and digital communications, modern hams interface computers and radios in entirely new ways. Ham radio in the 21st century can take you around the world or into a whole new career. Learn more. Go to ARRL.org. Join us. Smokey the Bear. Then you know why Smokey tells you when he sees you passing through. Remember, please be careful, it's the least that you can do. Don't play with matches, don't play with fire. 
After 80 years of learning his wildfire prevention tips, Smokey Bear lives within us all. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. And remember, only you can prevent wildfires. Brought to you by the USDA Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Dear hero, whoever you are, you save lives. I live with sickle cell and the pain and the issues that come along with sickle cell every day. I'm most grateful that people are willing to go out there and take their time, their blood, and give me new life. Because of you, I'm allowed to see my son grow up. Giving equals living. Give blood. Replenish the supply. Learn more at hhs.gov slash giveblood. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I have to start this next story with a warning. And trust me, I'm not being dramatic here. Um, The coroner who processed the crime scene that I'm about to describe said that he cried and could not eat for a week afterwards. Crime in question involved a victim named Lacey Ellen Fletcher. And up until about age 14, she appeared to live a pretty normal life on the outskirts of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But somewhere around ninth grade, um, it's believed that her autism got really bad because she effectively disappeared. Um, It's thought because of her autism being so serious that her mother decided to homeschool her. And the last time anybody saw Lacey outside of her house was 2006. So now fast forward, decade and a half later, January 2022. Lacey's mother, Sheila Fletcher, calls 911 and claims that she and her husband, Clay, had just come home from a weekend away and they found Lacey on the couch, not breathing. What the first responders encountered was a whole other story, like a horror story. The first thing they were hit with when they came into the house was the stench of human waste. And lying there, lifeless, on the living room couch was the emaciated body of Lacey Fletcher, now 36 years old. Lacey had open wounds to the bone, all the way from her feet to her buttocks. She had feces smeared on her face and matted into her hair. Her body was covered in maggots and gnats, and she was literally fused to that sofa that's on your screen right now. We're not gonna show you her body, but that was the crime scene right there. It was so bad that the floors under the couch were buckling under the pooling waste. An autopsy showed that Lacey died from a number of causes, and one of them was starvation. She was apparently so hungry that she was actually eating the foam from that sofa. You could see the pieces of it are missing everywhere. I suppose it is not a surprise then to hear that her parents were charged with second degree murder. But they denied everything. They claimed Lacey suffered from debilitating anxiety and that they had tried to feed her. But just this week they pleaded no contest to a reduced charge of manslaughter. And I'm joined now by Sam Dequilla, who is the district attorney in the case. Um, DA Aquila, thank you so much for, for being here. What am I missing? This fact pattern seems absolutely impossible to have an adult daughter literally dying slowly to the point where she's fused to a couch. What is their defense? What part of the story did I not bring forward? Uh, You brought pretty much all of it forward. The parents were actually charged with second degree murder. Last week in court, they entered a plea to uh, manslaughter. Both parents did. Both parents are 65 years old, Clay and Sheila Fletcher. I keep thinking really there's got to no- be something else. There's got to right, be some other explanation. What, what parent 
could live with a child, even an adult child, literally dying in front of them in a, in a circumstance that we're showing on the screen. It just seems utterly impossible. And they seem fairly normal. I mean, this is them walking, you know, with, with a bunch of church members supporting them. That's correct. They're prominent members of the community. They live in Slaughter, Louisiana. Uh, the husband works at a nuclear power plant in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and the mother was in the court system in Baker, Louisiana. They're members of the First Baptist Church in Zachary, Louisiana. Uh, the support that they have was the family members. I mean, not the family members, the community members and church members. They've actually written a lot of letters to the court system advising that they knew the Fletcher since uh, childhood or all their life or through their school years. They were actually, I believe, high school sweethearts. They've been married and resided in the same location for a number of years. There's just no indication of why this crime occurred. Uh, the defense attorneys state that they loved Lacey to death. Lacey was 36 years old, like you stated, when she passed. The last time that she has seen a medical uh, uh, provider, we believe, was in 2002. That's over 20 years ago. The maximum sentence for manslaughter, which they pled no low contendere to, is, is 40 years. So we're going to ask for the entire 40 years as their sentence. And, and that, as I understand, is going to happen on, on March 20 at the sentencing. You know, when when you go to trial, uh, you as, a, as a, a prosecutor would be privy to a lot of discovery and what the defense you know, might be planning to say. But uh, when you when there's a plea like this, have you have you been given any explanations? Have you been given anything? Will you be given anything? Is that all being held until March 20th so that they can plead their case and try to beg the judge to go easy on them? And basically what they, the defense that they're going to raise is learned helplessness. It's not a psychiatric, not, it's not a psychiatric disorder, but it's just a, a condition that you uh, learn when you're dealing with somebody that has a chronic disease, that you just cannot function. You know, we're, we're going to learn a lot more about it when they present uh, their case on the 20th. I mean, I can't even imagine what kind of case you can bring. Just just knowing the simple fact that 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 woman, that 36-year-old woman died that way on that sofa in that condition, being found in that condition, you know, while these two, by their own uh, admission, were, were away for a weekend. Um, the other question is those, those people, those church members who supported them and marched with them and wrote letters for them, did any one of them mention a word about Lacey? No. They said the Fletchers loved their daughter. They said the Fletchers uh, were there for their daughter. Nobody in any of the correspondence that were received made any mention that they have seen Lacey in the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, didn't go to church with them, didn't go on vacation with them. We have no indication that she was out of the house since 2010. As a matter of fact, uh, Sheila and Clay Fletcher brought Lacey to Dr. Hope in 2002. That's the last time he saw her. The parents came back in 2010, talked to Dr. Hope, said Lacey was confined to the house. She didn't want to leave the house. She didn't want to leave the living room. Uh, they didn't know what to do with her. He advised them that she needs to be hospitalized. They did not provide any type of medical care or any kind of treatment for her at all. And it's just, it just it's mind-boggling to us uh, why, and we really can't explain why. We don't have to prove motive. We don't have to prove premeditation. We just are just dumbfounded by the fact that this happened in this small community. Well, you and me both. Um, 
Mr. Tequila, thank you so much for being, for being on. Can I invite you back after the sentencing once maybe we learn a little bit more about whatever their story is going to be and whatever this judge decides to do? Can we, um, can we make a date for the, for the 20th? Yes, we can. And we know we really hope that this coverage provides really hope this coverage provides attention to the, the people that are out there, the, the children, the elderly and the infirm who can't speak for themselves. You know, your community needs to every all our communities need to come together and, and respond and, and check on people that are homebound. Without question. And if anyone out there is doing anything like this, beware. You will be caught at some point. Um, again, I can't thank you enough. Sam DeQuilla, um, look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for this. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Have a good night. I just want to give a programming note, too, uh, to our viewers here, that tomorrow night on our show, the coroner, who was among the first on the scene after that 911 call, is going to join us and why he calls it the most heinous crime he's ever seen. Coming up next, they thought they could put one over on the police at the scene of a deadly crash. How a pair of twin sisters are now paying the price for pretending to be each other after their SUV obliterated an Amish buggy killing two kids and the horse and injuring two more kids on their way to school. So what's going to happen to the twins behind that story, that lie, that switch? It's all next. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Remember, a country road in southern Minnesota, 8.30 in the morning, an SUV going way over the speed limit, crashes into the back of an Amish horse and buggy. Inside, four kids on their way to school. When the police arrived, they found two of those kids dead, two little girls. You can see them there, aged 7 and 11. Irma Miller is the one on the right, and her little sister Wilma is right back there, peeking over the cup in the back. The other two kids who were in the buggy were badly hurt. The horse that was pulling the buggy was killed. The driver of that speeding Toyota 4Runner was 35-year-old Samantha Jo Peterson. She would test positive for both weed and meth. Before police arrived, however, Samantha Jo Peterson's identical twin sister, Sarah, showed up at the scene, and allegedly a plot was born. According to the court documents, the pair swapped clothes at the crash site and lied about who was driving because who could tell them apart, right? They're twins. Sarah, the sober one, is on tape in a police car telling Samantha, quote, I think that one of those guys is on to me, but I really don't care. And then she said, there's no way they would ever know the difference between the two of us. So they can't tell. Sarah, again, the sober sister, initially told police that she was the one who was behind the wheel and even provided her blood to test for substances. And there was a pretty good reason why the sober sister was prepared to take the rap, other than the obvious. Because just six months earlier, Samantha, the not sober one, was charged with possession and use of meth and marijuana. And she also had two separate DUI convictions dating back to 2015. The twins' boss, 
yes, they worked at the same place, says that he believes Sarah, the sober one, was willing to take the fall because Samantha apparently took took care of Sarah's kids when Sarah was in prison sometime before. When the police opened Samantha's phone, they found internet searches, and you can't make this stuff up. What happens if you get in an accident with an Amish buggy and kill two people? And then another one. If you hit a buggy and kill two people, are you going to prison? The answer, by the way, is yes. Allegedly, Samantha Joe Peterson made the investigator's job even easier by just going ahead and admitting the whole switcheroo to her employer. The court papers say she told her human resources department, and I quote, I effed up. I just killed two Amish people. They were kids. I just hit an effing buggy, and I killed two people. And when HR asked whether she'd been drinking, she said, quote, I'm high on meth. Tonight, Samantha Joe Peterson is charged with 21 counts, including criminal vehicular homicide, driving under the influence, and leaving the scene of an accident. It is not clear whether she is in custody or whether she has an attorney at this point. But two innocent Amish sisters are dead, along with the horse that was attached to their buggy and two other kids badly hurt. Samantha Joe Peterson has a summons for a court date March 15th, and as for that twin sister of hers, she's in trouble too charged with trying to deceive the police and we are going to watch this one for the sake of those two little girls coming up next joe exotic the tiger king is back during the pandemic it seemed everybody was obsessed with him and his sentence for plotting to kill carol baskin he is still in prison but he does have a plan to get out and of all people it involves gypsy rose i know i don't get it either but i do have the details next Remember Joe Exotic, the Tiger King? Because how could you forget? If you're like me, back in March of 2020, uh, when the Netflix docuseries about him dropped, it was literally all I could think of. It's all anyone could talk about, that's for sure. How he hired hitmen to kill his arch nemesis, Carol Baskin, and how he actually ended up getting um, sentenced to 21 years in prison for it. Well, Carol Baskin is still alive, uh, and Joe Exotic is still behind bars, but he doesn't want to be. And he's trying to get out. And he's asking, of all people, Gypsy Rose Blanchard for a little help here. (laughs) And we're indeed talking about that, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. The one who served more than eight years behind bars for conspiring to kill her mother after a childhood filled with abuse and torture. Gypsy was released from prison back in in December. And three days ago, uh, Gypsy Rose posted this photo to her Instagram with a message to her fans thanking them for their support. And a lot of fans commented on the photo, and lo and behold, guess what we found? We found um, that Joe Exotic actually commented as well from his official Instagram account. And the comment reads, help free Joe Exotic. (laughs) Pretty simple, just hashtag free Joe Exotic. Uh, He's always maintained that he was innocent, right? And he regularly reaches out to celebrities um, he wants help with his case. In the past, he's actually reached out to the NFL quarterback, uh, Joe Burrow. He has reached out to Kim Kardashian because she helps release, you know, people who are wrongly accused. 
And um, now he's reaching out to Gypsy Rose. She did not respond publicly, though, to to uh, Joe Exotic's request. So it's really uncon- it's unclear if she's considering helping him. It's really unclear what she could do for him. But his comment on Gypsy Rose's post did get him more than 2,100 likes. We'll continue to follow the story. We'll let you know if anything happens. In the meantime, that is it for me. I am done. Uh, My friend Cuomo, though, he's not. He's up next. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. How are you doing? Here's a thought. Maybe it's not simply the economy that's going to decide this election, but safety and economic safety is part of that. But no domestic issue checks the boxes that the southern border does. Today, we passed the one million mark of migrant encounters at the southern border since October. Puts us way ahead of even last year's unprecedented pace. But is the GOP... This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.